Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're about to go against the grain for the next couple of hours, and we have a lot. We had, look, so much for today that we had to shuffle some things around till yeah, tomorrow. It's we had true, so much to actually. talk about. Uh, we are, of course, going to get into Joe Biden's, um, you know, now announced, now confirmed plans to travel to both Saudi Arabia and Israel next month. He's going to meet MBS, but he's not going to specific MBS. That's right. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He's going to meet all the heads of state of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Exactly right. Yeah. And so it's a it's a big crowd of people. Yeah. Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little uh, cover there. There definitely is a little bit of cover there. It's also going to be in Jeddah and not Riyadh. So. Yes, extra which casual. Is, which is the yeah, it is kind of extra casual. The Saudis, it gets so bloody hot in Riyadh in the summer that the Saudis move the capital to Jeddah uh, in the summertime, just because there's. I mean, it's a difference between 120 degrees and 115 degrees. Yeah, but still. but there's a little bit of a breeze off the Red Sea. Oh yeah, so. yeah. Look, there's a difference between <laughs> negative 30 and negative 35. Uh, we are also going to talk about accusations uh, of Russian war crimes in uh, Kharkiv and Kiev. It's Amnesty International who's making these accusations, and we are going to talk about that and also about what international bodies uh, are sort of in place to look at these yeah, questions, to right? These how, how do we decide, you know, in, in a world that is imperfect, right? Should we be paralyzed because our institutions are imperfect, or do we have to just sort of let imperfect institutions uh, meet out the best justice that we can at the moment? which I think is an interesting question to grapple with as a it resident is. of the country that is the one that's always getting a pass, right? That's right. But because the U.S. gets a pass, does the rest of the world also get a pass? I don't think that's... Yeah. That's right. uh, we are going to get into uh, what we have learned about what might have gone down in Coeur Idaho, uh, which sounds as though... Um, sounds on one hand really goofy. It sounds on the other hand pretty dangerous. You know, they made a point of saying when I say they, I mean, the the sheriff of Coeur d'Alene or a police chief or whatever he is. I think I guess he's the police chief. He gave a press conference yesterday that was really quite professional. Um, and he sought to nip in the bud any conspiracy theories or or uh, stories that are um, sort of beginning to make the rounds. He said, look. This was not Antifa in disguise, right? It was not crisis actors. They were 31 members of this white supremacist group. They were all jammed into this U-Haul. Uh, they were all wearing masks, all 31 of them. There were no guns, but a couple of them had clubs and one had a smoke bomb. And oh. apparently this is their thing. No guns. No guns. I've seen reports. I've seen reports that... Just yeah. otherwise. Yes. But okay. That's what he said. There there were no guns. Oh, we'll take the cops' word for it. <laughs> go on. We'll talk about this more later. Yeah. But uh yeah, we're gonna talk to Kevin Gastal about this later. This it, you know, is it is it my imagination that that these groups are emboldened? I mean, I never no. heard of the Proud Boys and the Vanguard Patriots and the three percenters and I never heard of these groups until January the 6th or or maybe until Charlottesville. Yeah, I guess Charlottesville is when they when they became more well known. And Whitefish, Montana. 
Uh, they, you know, every yeah. once in a while, in a couple of places in the United States, you would have like uh, clans. Yes. Uh, you know, the members, of, members of the KKK who felt emboldened to either hold hold a parade or disrupt another parade. But it was Correct. it was in a, a couple of places. Whitefish, Montana being yes. one of them and like, pro- you know, probably somewhere in Idaho also as another. That's but it is a lot so more widespread now. And uh, they're definitely they're taking on. Yes, they are. We're going to talk a little bit more uh, about, you know, ongoing efforts to strangle independent media. Uh, and, you know, PayPal's PayPal, PayPal's latest crackdown. Uh, we oh, we're going to talk about the AFL-CIO. Yeah, we sure are. And their complicated history a In little fact, bit later. Joe Biden is speaking at the AFL-CIO uh, right now. Uh, it's their annual convention being held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But we're going to look at it from a different angle. We have three guests coming on as part of a panel to talk about why the U.S. government gives the AFL-CIO $75 million a year. Why is that? Is it to pay the salaries of all the FBI agents inside it? Or the CIA (laughs) officers inside it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, we used to joke at the CIA that the AFL-CIO was really named the Mm AFL-CIA. And uh, we'll get into that in some specificity. The other uh, stories that we should note before we get started uh, is, of course, we have a new... A new indicator and a new record. It, every day there's a new sort of economic indicator that's, yeah. uh, you know, seeing a decades long high. Uh, this is wholesale prices. Wholesale prices rose by almost 11 percent in May. That is also almost a record. A lot of almost records. Right. Yes. And a lot of these records harken back to the the 60s and the 70s. Right. Which was uh, what Ben Bernanke invoked in an editorial for The Wall Street Journal when he said, hey, 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 don't don't actually look, I know inflation seems scary right now. I know everything is running high, but we are not likely in danger of repeating the experiences of the 1960s and 1970s. Almost certainly not, John. Almost certainly. Almost certainly not. Sorry, writing in the New York Times in his guest essay. And again, great, right? And it is hard to you know, when you feel as though you live in ordinary times, it is hard sometimes to imagine them becoming extraordinary or perhaps hard to uh, recognize what is extraordinary when you're in the midst of them. But this administration mentioned several times do a particularly bad job of foreseeing some of these yes. things. Yes. Right? If we are to take them at their word, right? They were not able to foresee the immediate collapse of the government of Afghanistan. Yes. They were not able to foresee the tenacity of the inflation that we are now experiencing and they perhaps now are not able to, uh, you know, that, that tenacity continuing, right? Yes. Well, who knows, but I am not necessarily particularly uh, soothed by the words of the former fed chief in times this morning. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I feel like they don't feel like they're winging it. Yeah. And, and just hoping for the best. And again, wasn't the campaign all about experience? Right. Oh, we are experienced people. We could do these things. We can maintain these important but tricky relationships like with, you know, Saudi Arabia. Oh, all right. Well, yes. how's that going? And again, I don't I'm not I don't want the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in a close embrace. But this weird a relationship that we get nothing from, but also right, literally we don't get anything from Saudi Arabia and we also don't get anything satisfy in terms of a sort of satisfying moral stance. 
because our actions don't match the rhetoric when it comes to specifically the leaders. I also enjoy how we are going to talk about this more later, but uh, the the issues between uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are so often couched as personal issues between Joe Biden and MBS, which is yeah. so stupid, <laughs> right? Like Joe Biden right. personally doesn't like human rights abuses. And so that's why he's got a problem with this guy. It's sure. just really silly. Um, but yeah, that was a whole they were supposed to have the experience to protect us from these things. And so either that was a lie and they're all just. Uh, or they're lying to us when they say this wasn't expected and they have calculated that this is an acceptable price for the rest of us to pay for the actions that they want to take. Uh, speaking of buffoons, uh, we've got Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, a very unpopular fight for some reason. Uh, and I say for some reason, and the only reason I can think of is, is that he wants to appease unionists in Northern Ireland who are refusing yeah. to form a government with the victors in the last parliamentary election who were Sinn Féin. Uh, the DUP, which came in second, they, they have to share power. You know, you have to have a, a unionist and nationalist party sharing power as a result of the Good Friday agreements. Uh, and the DUP had been fine with the implementation of what's called the Northern, the Northern Ireland Protocol in the Brexit agreement. I mean, maybe they resisted it, but they have been in government and they have been, you know, it, it has existed. It came, it came into being, right? right? And this is a protocol that was set up to figure out a way to allow Northern Ireland to go with the rest of the United Kingdom away from Europe to break away, but to allow the Republic of Ireland uh, which did not want to leave the European to remain within the bloc, right? And so they decided they would set up this protocol that would not create a border within Ireland, which is perceived to be very politically uh, dangerous and very Absolutely. unappealing, but instead create a, a customs border between the UK and Northern Ireland, well, to, to create a check for some goods coming in. Uh, and so this is the protocol that everyone has been reasonably happy with ever since, except for the, you know, hardcore unionists, but they were going along with it. Uh, well, now they have decided, no, they can't possibly form a government with right. Sinn Féin until this protocol is resolved. And into the fray, it seems, has come Boris Johnson with a new law that has been introduced into the House of Commons that would, uh, it would instead create green lanes for some goods which would have little paperwork, right? So, right? so something of an open border and red lanes that are to get more scrutiny. It also, the bill demands that trade disputes be resolved by independent arbitration and not by the European Court of Justice. And so, you know, it seems like I expect that the DUP is happy with this. Uh, Liz Truss, uh, the UK foreign minister, has come out and said, yes, you know, this is terrific. This is going to solve all these problems that we didn't actually have before. Uh, and uh, everyone else is pretty angry about it. The Irish prime minister said it's very regrettable for a country like the UK to renege on an international treaty. I would just say, yeah, hey, feel ya, buddy. <laughs> I feel that pain. Um, and also 52 of the 90 members of the Northern Ireland Assembly signed a letter rejecting in strongest possible terms the attempt to rewrite the protocol. They called his move reckless. Um, and so, you know, Boris Johnson... I don't think you can see Boris Johnson as being in a particularly strong position right Agreed. now. So I'm I'm curious yeah. about the political calculus yes. uh, that went into making this decision. 
but I guess he thought, well, uh, where where can I squeeze a little more support from? Maybe it's the unionists in Northern Ireland and sort of throwing a throwing a wrench into that situation. So we will see what happens. I mean, it's been how long ago is the Irish election? A couple of weeks. Oh, it's now. been several weeks at least. Yeah, it's yeah. been weeks, and they haven't been able to seat an executive, right? Because the Stuck. the unionists would not agree to the power share. You yes. know, they they won't agree to be part of the government, and so now they have. Uh, I guess they can have this to use as an excuse to wait for this passage. Yes, there's a there's some news also from Alaska. Hmm. Uh, Alaska had a very odd. Um, Monday primary yesterday, and the only race that really mattered was the the race for House of Representatives. It's a special election because Don Young, the the longtime uh, representative at large for the state of Alaska, he had served for 49 years, 25 terms, and he died in office several months ago. 48 people are running for this House seat, 48 people. One of them, the the one who showed the most poorly, only got 15 votes in the entire state of Alaska. Aw, I could get more than that from my family. (laughs) That's right. I could too. Um, Now, the way they do it in Alaska is the top four vote getters go to a runoff. And the winner of the runoff gets the seat. Well, number one at 29.77% is Sarah Palin. Now, Sarah Palin was the mayor of Wasilla. She was the governor of Alaska. She was the Republican nominee for vice president of the United States, and she could muster only 29.77%. 29 or 22? I'm amazed by that. Number two is a guy named Nick Begich. Now, Nick Begich is from one of the most important families in, in Alaska. His father... Nick Begich, his grandfather, uh, forgive me, uh, Nick Begich the first was uh, a member of Congress, and he and several other members of Congress, including the House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, were killed in a plane crash in 1972. They never found the plane. They never found the bodies. Yeah, um, Nick Begich the second is a prominent um, screenwriter and and um, author. This Nick Begich III, who came in second to Sarah Palin, his uncle, Mark Begich, was a Democratic senator. So his grandfather was a Democratic congressman, very liberal. His uncle was a Democratic senator, very liberal. Nick Begich III is very conservative, Republican, ran as a Republican, and his uh, his, uh, campaign slogan was conservative leadership for tomorrow. Very strange. Okay. Uh, then there's a guy named Al Gross, who is the the most well-known independent. And then coming in fourth at seven and a half percent is Mary Heltola, who is the uh, the only Democrat. So this is going to come down to really Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. And uh, I don't have any idea who's going to win. I don't think it really matters terribly. Uh, there was a funny there was a funny piece in The Washington Post today. And while we're um, while we're talking, I'm going to find it. It was in the um, it was in the opinion section and it's called Sarah Palin is back smaller than ever. No, (laughs) she might win. She might win. I mean, she's going to be a a junior backbencher member of Congress, you know, junior most 
at the bottom of the committees and... Oh, hold on now. Sarah Palin and Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to team up. And Lauren Boebert. Yeah. This is going to be the new, this is going to be the new conservative squad. Like, yeah, she's going to be a backbencher, but the potential, look, we're going to see an MTGSP presidential ticket. I would bet you 50 cents because I'm not sure what happened, but you never know in this country. It'll be fun to watch anyway. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We can escape consequences. Which, All right, let's take a quick break here. I know our next guest is waiting for us. We're going to come back and talk more international policy for the next couple of minutes here on Political Misfits. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to talk a little bit now about war crimes, the oversight or lack thereof of the uh, huge numbers of weapons that are going to Ukraine, and talk a little bit more about Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and what questions we should be asking about that relationship instead of the ones that are being asked for us in the mainstream Joining us for this conversation is Dr. David Wolalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant and an author and a former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of the Geopolitics and Conflict show on YouTube, and his latest book is The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. Dr. Wolalu, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Michelle and John. Welcome back. I want to start um, by talking a little bit about these uh, accusations of war crimes in Ukraine by Amnesty International and what, you know, what can be done. Amnesty International has accused Russia of committing war crimes in Kharkiv. It has already accused Russia of committing war crimes in Kiev Oblast. These alleged crimes include extrajudicial killings, indiscriminate attacks that result in the death of civilians and the use of cluster munitions. And, you know, I personally, I have no doubt that all three have occurred and should be investigated and prosecuted. Uh, I also think Amnesty has come to these conclusions with remarkable swiftness compared to the way that it investigates or, or claims to be unable to investigate war crimes committed by the United States. Because uh, I, I had a look through what Amnesty has reported about the U.S. And I will say in 2004, they said the U.S. had committed war crimes in Abu Ghraib specifically, right? Because everybody saw those pictures. But when it comes to what we might have been doing in Raqqa or Mosul or Saudi Ara- or Somalia or Yemen, uh, Amnesty is mostly only able to say that war crimes might have taken place international law might have been violated and won't someone please do an investigation just not them right uh and i I have a couple examples here just because i think they are worth getting into uh it Amnesty International describes in Raqqa the U.S., U.K., and France launching thousands of airstrikes into civilian neighborhoods, scores of which resulted in mass civilian casualties, and saying Raqqa's soaring civilian death toll is unsurprising given the coalition's relentless barrage of munitions that were inaccurate to the point of being indiscriminate when used near civilians. Uh, In Mosul, Amnesty was positive ISIS had committed war crimes and the U.S.-led coalition had committed, quote, unlawful attacks. Uh, I did not see any calls for prosecution there, just a call for tactics to be changed. 
uh, in Raqqa, it said, yeah, we have found what looks like a lot of war crimes, but we will never have the resources to fully examine them. So could the United States and coalition partners get together and organize an independent investigation of themselves? And so, you know, I say this just not. I don't want to suggest that because one country commits war crimes and gets away with it, that other countries should. But I do want to start by asking, you know, is it really so unclear whether the U.S. and its various coalition partners have committed and are committing crimes in Africa and the Middle East? Is it that much easier to collect information in Ukraine? Or is it war crimes are more conceivable by some countries than others? What is going on here, David? <laughs> One laughing out of, you know, not laughing, laughing, but laughing out of uh, the, uh, the lack of <laughs> how inadequate this amnesty is. So they don't have the resources to conduct a thorough investigation in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Do have resources to conduct an investigation in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Don't have the thorough uh, resources to conduct investigations in Afghanistan when, for example, the British and the, some of the U.S. and some of Aussies, Australian, committed war crimes in, in, in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. To me, it's the idea of a double standard. And that's what it amounts to. And you cannot, you as an entity, you as a country, you as an international organization, you can be claiming this hypes for, you know, we stand for the rule of law, mm -hmm. we stand for human rights, but you as an entity that's supposed to push that forward are conducting the investigation in double standards. Yeah. In the case of Ukraine, and here is what your listeners need to know, because it has not been reported in the Western media. And as a matter of fact, what I came across was by an anonymous person. And anytime I've learned over the years, anytime there is the word anonymous, mm -hmm. most of the time that person is from within. Mm -hmm. Inside suggested, it's not suggested, they wrote that the Ukrainian parliament had to fire, actually literally remove uh, a person by the name Ludmila Denisova. She was the parliament, the parliament's commissioner for human rights for her post. Well, what she posted was, it's just she exaggerated the rape cases in, in, in Ukraine by the Russian uh, uh, soldiers. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 the assault allegations were made were fake. Mm -hmm. That's what it amounts to. So the move to dismiss her came really after some sort of an outrage, uh, the wording used in public reports mm -hmm. about this alleged sexual assault committed by the Russians. Mm -hmm. But it tells you right there to me personally, and I speak for myself here, you know, the double standard of how amnesty all of a sudden is kind of like, no, 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 we're going to have to investigate the worker. Even the ICC, mm -hmm. the International Criminal Court, when I read that uh, the the judge, Kareem, I believe uh, he's the new judge for the ICC, requesting now that he will be funding to investigate war crimes in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. Why didn't he ask for war crimes in Yemen? Yeah, I mean, this is the question. But here, the follow up has to be this, though. I mean, I we all know that the ICC is a is a flawed institution, right? And that Amnesty International clearly is a biased institution. But... Does that mean that we should all just be paralyzed, right? Because the United States and its partners get a pass that Russia should also get a pass. You know, like, I, have we, do we just go, oh, well, 
there, there is no purity in this world. So all we do is sit and watch war crimes be committed day in and day out, and, and no one can do anything because everybody's on somebody's side. You know, what is, what is the solution here? The idea of if you're going to have a, 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 an entity like, like, like the amnesty, it ought to be independent. And when I say independent, true in a sense, it can be swayed or influenced by any entity whatsoever. To me, that's where that credibility is going to come in. I mean, I look at just recently, uh, uh, for example, the report that came out from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, regarding the Iran nuclear deal. You know, it was pressured by the West to issue that report. Where is the credibility into this when, for example, South Korea conducted nuclear experiments, but no complaints were filed by the IAEA? So this is no different than what Amnesty is doing. You can't, you can't, you as a, an international organization cannot be cherry picking. And otherwise, what credibility that does an entity like that have? What will I trust what they say? And here is now this report that was filed about the uh, Denisova, calls her post over the handling of the allegations of Russian sexual assault in Ukraine. They're fake. Because she was sort of invited in Brussels, and he had to make, well, you can't, you know, Amnesty has to sort of balance between what's been said versus what it is. Price, it has no credibility whatsoever. Let's also talk about uh, these growing calls in the United States for some kind of oversight uh, of the more than $50 billion worth of aid, uh, which, of course, is, uh, you know, quite a lot of weapons going to Ukraine. The Wall Street Journal spoke about this this morning. We've mentioned it before. People are increasingly going, "Okay, hey, maybe we should like track some of this stuff. Um, The Wall Street Journal sort of went went to kind of comic pains to say there is no evidence that the weapons have gotten into the wrong hands yet and included this. I have to mention this line just because it is funny. Uh, They said, Zelensky is credited with doing a very good job of bringing a country together, bringing the military together and fighting off Russian aggression thus far. And that has had its own galvanizing effect on the country. And so any kind of structural problems with the government from a corruption standpoint maybe have been shifted aside, which is just, again, this is not to say because your country is corrupt that you deserve to be violently invaded by another country. But it just it exemplifies how we are. We cannot talk about, about the thing itself. Right. And so within Ukraine, these people who have been quite happy, these people, meaning corrupt entities within the country mm-hmm. who have been quite happy to to uh, profit from human misery for years now, suddenly in wartime, no longer want to profit <laughs> from human misery. Come on. Why do you have to throw this in? But anyway. So uh, they note that Ukraine probably needs something like the special inspector general for Afghanistan or SIGAR to track or attempt to track uh, expenditures in the country, what they're being used for, where those funds and that material is going. And I wanted to get your thoughts on on how effective our past efforts to track uh, these flows have been. Uh, they weren't, I mean, to a degree, they weren't 100% satisfactory. I mean, I recall one incident in Iraq when I was over there. I went back and forth so many times, and it was about $4 billion was missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The investigation, of course, was conducted. They did find who the officer was involved with the contractors and so forth. But at the same time, it's not just for the government to do this, also because the, the responsibility of the government towards the people. That's mm-hmm. taxpayers' money. 
you know, it's our money. We need to know where it's spent, and if it is spent efficiently. Mm-hmm. You look at now these weapons that's been sent to Ukraine. Where are they? They're being destroyed anyway. Yeah. Oh, what happened to all this? What happened to the fifty plus billion dollars that was sent to Ukraine? Mm-hmm. What is it? You know. Yeah. I remember I when I conducted my own research for my own books, you know, and I find out, for example, the money we've been giving to Egypt, as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, Hosni Mubarak has a bank account in Switzerland with over a few billions of dollars. That's that US taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. I have no problem. I, as an American, have no problem with helping others. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it has to be pragmatic and logic. You cannot take money away from Americans who are now suffering because of the energy cost, the price commodities. I'm sure you heard what happened to the stock market yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unjustified. And that becomes the question. Yeah. Policymakers. Do they have the really the good intentions for the welfare of the American people? Or are they oblivious to how geopolitics, how the com- complexities of global affairs are? Yeah. yeah. So why should American people suffer for something that they have no interest whatsoever? Speaking of complex geopolitics, we also have Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East next month. He's going to go to Israel, and then he is going to fly directly to South- Saudi Arabia which is something of a, uh, you know, a little feather in his cap already to have that direct flight. Uh, as John and I mentioned, he will meet not only the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, but all the heads of state of the Gulf Cooperation Council. The meeting will be in Jeddah, not Riyadh, making it extra non-state. You know what I mean? This is a this is just a chill meeting of friends. This is not a state visit. Everybody is doing a little bit of covering with this. And so now we have all these stories about the opportunity this presents to repair this crucial relationship. Um, Politico piece, of course, written by an Atlantic Council think tanker, uh, says this should be the launch of a step by step repair of this crucial relationship. So we have these calls on one hand. On the other hand, CNN has spent weeks now documenting which golfers are joining the Saudi live competition. They have Bob Costas on this morning to say how they're all taking blood money and talking about how Phil Mickelson had to come out and say, yeah, he feels bad for the victims of 9-11. I mean, this is a golfer, you know, like and and the PGA has suspended every golfer who participated in the live uh, tournament. Yeah. And so on one hand, we demand we we publicly flog golfers for pay, playing in a fancy tournament, right? And demand uh, these, you know, like uh, performative rejection of Saudi Arabia from uh, celebrities whose position really does not matter. And on the other hand, you know, it, it's all well, okay. How can we how can we get things going with Saudi Arabia again politically? Uh, and I just think it's an interesting contrast, right? We we require the surface level condemnation from celebrities, uh, but when it comes to af- actual policy changes from our government, we just sort of accept that nothing can ever change in this relationship. <laughs> well, then I wish I could disclose, Michelle. Right. I wish I could disclose the stuff that I wrote in the book about Saudis that the government asked me not to. It's uh, when I wrote the book about the Saudis, fall of the house of beneath the veil, fall of the house of Saudi. Uh, yeah, this is absurd. Thanks, R. You know, but then then that brings back your first uh, statement about amnesty. Mm-hmm. Where is amnesty? <laughs> mm-hmm. Comes down now to what MBS, and this is based on the uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence community 
that uh, Mohammed bin Salman in BS, he was the one who ordered the killing of Janak Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just under global optics, the U.S. president sitting down with MBS, that's, that's, that says it all right there. You know? Well, and I mean, this is couched as like, okay, I guess, you know, no golfer has to go get several million dollars from Saudi Arabia, right? So you can make the argument that, yes, yes, it's all very distasteful, but we have to have this special relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. And I want to ask, I kind of want to ask, why? Right. At the risk of sounding extremely naive, this Politico piece lays out, you know, the the essential needs of both sides of the relationship. And I want to get your thoughts on them. It says that the U.S. needs Saudi Arabia to not buy Russian or Chinese weapons. It says we need Saudi Arabia to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's persecution of Uyghur Muslims. The U.S. needs Saudi oil production to be increased right now for our geopolitical desires. And on oil, okay, that is clear. Joe Biden wants Americans to pay less at the gas tank, so his political uh, future is more clear. But as to the rest, why? Why do we need that? And I I say that or I ask that not because I think there is no answer, but because I think the answer as to why the United States needs Saudi Arabia not to buy Russian or Chinese weapons is not the answer that I think Antony Blinken would give us. I wonder what you think the why is for that. Well, well, because there are concerns that the Saudis might move forward now with with accepting the payment of oil in the Chinese currency. Mm. That is a big blow to the U.S. dollar. It will be a big blow. Can you imagine now that also the Saudis have now considered, and they are considering joining the BRICS, mm-hmm. uh, British, uh, British, uh, Brazil, or Russia, India, and China, and South Africa. Mm-hmm. BRICS, well, if they join the BRICS, you can see where this is headed. Mm-hmm. Why? Because within the BRICS, you will have two major oil producers in the world, Russia and Saudi Arabia. And also you have two major consumers, India and China with a big market. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is very, very concerned about should the Saudis move forward with starting to accept the payments for oil in the, uh, in, in, in the Chinese uh, currency. But that means the value of the dollar is going to drop. Mm-hmm. There is another element, which is geopolitical landscape in the Middle East. For why this argument, we need to be, uh, we need to always maintain our relationship with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with, of course, the growth of Iran, the influence of Iran in the Middle East. Yeah. The United States sees it as we'll be better off with the monarchy there. I mean, because there is, here is the logical argument, and I argue from my perspective here. Can you imagine if the kingdom ceased to exist in Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. Would we have? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you about the other side of that, because I I think, you know, as you started by saying, Saudi Arabia might move on. Uh, The essential, uh, you know, the essential driving force for Saudi Arabia, we are to understand from the Atlantic Council, is that Saudi Arabia has no serious alternative to the United States as a guarantor of its security against the very real threats it faces. And I just wonder, do, do you think that is true today? Saudi Arabia has no serious alternative to the U.S. as a security guarantor? No, I won't buy that argument. And I, I, usually the analysis that I read from the Atlantic Council, and, you know, they, we all know what, why they write the way they write. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I mean, they sort of do represent what, what ends up coming out of the U.S. State Department, so it's worth considering, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. 
Saudis have the alternatives and have the other options. As a matter of fact, you can just see now why, even with the trip of the upcoming trip, rather, of uh, President Biden, you know, you look at how the Chinese, how the uh, Saudis went ahead and extended an invitation to President Xi prior to President Biden. Mm -hmm. That's the dynamics. It tells you right there where the interest. Saudis are moving east, whether we want to, whether we want to admit to that or not. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a fact, you know. As to their weapon purchases, yeah, they can, they can go with the Chinese, they can go with the Russians. Yes, they will still maintain some from the U.S., but they don't have other alternatives. Mm -hmm. Arguments that they are making about, no, because they have to depend on, no, no, that's nonsense, mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. So Saudis are seeing where the trend is headed. You know, there is now this shift. The wealth has already shifted from the West to the East because the East, it's, it's going to be the global economic hub for the world moving forward. Mm -hmm. we, we just, some of us, I shall not generalize, of course, some of us are living in denial. Mm -hmm. We don't want to accept the new geopolitical landscape now. Yeah, and you have to wonder, you know, despite how, uh, you know, sort of, fraught and tense this relationship has become, if there is sort of an element of political theater and Joe Biden even maintaining a, a sort of embarrassing relationship right now, right? Because the U.S. still has to pretend that there is something really important in it for Saudi Arabia, too. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems sort of it seems odd to think that a relationship that has become a little bit, you know, a little bit of an embarrassment for the Biden administration would also be something that the administration keeps up just to avoid uh, having more attention drawn to the fact that countries do not think the U.S. is the only alternative, uh, you know, the, the only security guarantor they can have and the only uh, vehicle for a prosperous future. I wonder how long this theater will continue. Well, that's probably it will become clear by the midterm elections in the U.S. <laughs> that's what they're going to be living. You know, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Michelle. Saudis are not dumb. Mm -hmm. Smart. They are why they know how to sort of manipulate, and they have been manipulating U.S. administrations for years. Mm -hmm. This is not yesterday, <laughs> because they know the U.S. depend so much on their oil. Of course, they have so much gold in, in New York, and and there, there is a lot behind the scenes that an average Joe, average Jane, does not understand. Mm -hmm. Which makes it now clear, just for your listeners to know why the investigation for the 9-11 has been swept under the rug by Congress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll see why. So, so the idea of what this argument about, well, the Saudis and the Americans' relationship are, 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 are getting back on... No, mm -hmm. no, it's nonsense. And yes, you are absolutely correct that the trip, in my opinion, is making a mockery of where America stands regarding, you know, you can't be saying one thing and doing another, like we said earlier with amnesty. Yeah. Or you can only do it so long before more people start to to notice it. That was Dr. David Walalu. He's an author. He's a geopolitical consultant. David, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. 
Governmental and pseudo-governmental entities have waged a war on independent journalism in recent months. Our friends at Consortium News, The Gray Zone, Mint Press News, and elsewhere have been accused of being Russian stooges or fellow travelers. Name-calling, though, is one thing. An entirely different thing is what these outlets have been up against. PayPal has permanently frozen all three outlets' accounts. A company called NewsGuard has placed an electronic tag on the Gray Zone and Mint Press News, calling them unreliable. They're threatening to do the same thing to Consortium News, and recently leaked emails from a British journalist show that Nina Jankowitz, who had been appointed to head the federal government's ill-fated Disinformation Governance Board, said that Consortium News was made up of useful idiots. This is a this is a serious problem, mm-hmm. and I, I want to be totally transparent here, too. I, I write for Consortium News, and I'm on the board of directors of Consortium News, mm-hmm. and so this is something that's close to my heart. Mm-hmm. It's also very, very dangerous. Yeah. Because if you snuff out alternative views, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying, you know, dangerous views. We're not shouting fire in a crowded theater. We're presenting analysis Mm -hmm. that we believe to be true, analysis that's based on the facts. We uh, place a premium on things like human rights, for example, Mm -hmm. and uh, and we're attacked for it. Here's the other thing. Kicking people off, I mean, it is already uh, nigh on impossible to get Voices that express a certain critique, and most often this is a critique of sort of American imperial power, American imperial adventures. Yes. It's impossible for for that kind of criticism to get an airing on mainstream television media or mainstream print media, right? The instances in which that happens are, are extremely rare and extremely tepid, yes. right? And so the way independent media is able to survive in this country is through individual donations. That's it. You know what Five, I mean? 10, you, 20 you have bucks a, at a, a Patreon account, you have a PayPal account, you know, and this is to say, no, we won't even let individuals who appreciate the work mm-hmm. you're doing pay you. Yes. You know, unless yes. you meet them on a street corner, they that's give it. you 20 bucks every the month or something. Snuff you know, out these I mean, I guess you views. could go bank to bank, but that's really complicated. And so, yeah, again, it's a really, it's a, 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 all okay. None of them are going to get on CNN, mm-hmm. right? None right. of them are getting opinion uh, inches in the Washington Post. Right. But you can't even let them earn earn enough money to to run their own website. Yeah, right. That is pretty draconian. Yeah, it's supposed to be up to these organizations these other organizations to decide what we get to read and and what what independent media gets to publish i think we do have joe loria now are you with us joe yes i am can you hear me fantastic yes we sure can thank you so much joe we were just saying that independent journalism seems to be under attack paypal's freezing accounts we have these companies like newsguard and bellingcat making accusations that independent news sites are under the control of russia the goal seems to be to shut down these alternative voices. Why do you think this is happening in the first place? What are they so afraid of? One thing is social media. In the old days, it was much easier to uh, control the narrative on three television networks. Oh, yeah. A couple of major newspapers. You remember LBJ's story? He had three TVs in the Oval Office. And right. When they said, one of them said something wrong about the Vietnam War, he would call the head of the network and chew them out. Mm-hmm thousands of people on in, on social media and chew them out. So they, they're in a situation where they're in a new environment to control the narrative 
when just about anybody could start a podcast, a webcast, a, a publication, or just reach thousands. But with a tweet, uh, they they moved into this new uh, arrangement with these this cottage industry of disinformation warriors that we're dealing with now. But what they were yeah. was the same thing Johnson was afraid of. He was afraid that he was that it would be found out that the U.S. was actually losing the war. Yeah. Vietnam, and as the Pentagon Papers then showed, they were indeed. So that lie could not be exposed, and any criticism of the war in Vietnam, he could not be tolerated. Same thing now. Any criticism of U.S. policy, uh, foreign policy in general, in particular over Ukraine, they will not tolerate that. They smear you, yes, as a stooge of a foreign government, just like in the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. era. Genuine anti-war protesters who were uh, standing up against their own government's murderous policies were smeared as being stooges of Hanoi or Beijing or Moscow. It's the same old trick government's been using for decades. We're seeing that over again. What's different again is social media. So they have to uh, go into overdrive to try to shut down uh, different dissenting narratives, propping up as little influence as consortium news has. It apparently is enough to draw their attention as we Mm -hmm. have out now. Don't want a little spark of dissent growing uh, larger so that it causes a problem. Assange, of course, Julian Assange, the best example of how they have mm-hmm. case literally a human being in prison because he's exposed them. So they don't want to tolerate any kind of exposure, which is journalism's job, isn't it, John? That's the job. It of- sure is. John, can I just throw in Please. that, like, you know, with, on the lines of being accused of being an apologist for this or that, even the Pope, even the Pope, when the Pope, Pope yes. Francis comes out to say, yeah. hey, guys, you know, I, I just feel like it's worth a thorough examination of the root causes of this war and how we got here. And yes, now I have to say I am not pro-Putin. I mean, the right. Pope has to say, has to I'm not taking a side in this conflict. I was saying uh, just a minute ago, Joe, that I write regularly for, for him from the balcony. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I was saying that I write regularly for Consortium News. And beyond that, I'm a, I'm proud to be associated with Consortium News. This, the writers are serious journalists who are leaders in their field. They write serious analyses of issues that in many cases are ignored by the mainstream media. But these corporate and governmental actions have people frightened. I know, for example, that the likes of Reader Supported News, Covert Action Magazine, The Sheer Post, and so many others are watching to see how things play out with consortium because they fear for their own viability. So, Joe, can you tell us exactly what consortium news is up against here? Is it able to defend itself against these specious accusations, against these companies that that seem to have huge budgets? coming from the Pentagon and elsewhere? Well, the first part of your question, uh, what we're up against, all of this has happened quite quickly in the last, I would say, two months. Yeah. And with PayPal, they suspended us permanently. We can no longer use PayPal to raise funds. They never gave a reason why. Their, uh, their user terms say that you can't spread disinformation. The only thing we trade in is information. I have to assume uh, I think without any doubt or little doubt that it's uh, because of our coverage of Ukraine that PayPal had a shutdown. Mm-hmm. Number two, we were then uh, informed by NewsGuard that they are going to uh, review us, which they're in the process of doing right now. NewsGuard indeed has partnerships with the State Department and the Pentagon, and on their board is your former boss. I don't know if you worked at the NS- at the CIA. No, when- thank God. I don't think you did. No. <laughs> <laughs> He was former CIA director and NSA director, Michael Hayden. So he's on the board, uh, as well as a former NATO secretary general and the first DHS, uh, Tom Ridge. Director. That's it. Yep. 
They are trying to say that we are – they accused us already of publishing false content for saying there was a coup in 2014 that the U.S. was involved in and that the, there are no, there's no evidence of neo-Nazism in Ukraine having any really significant influence. So we responded in a 9,000-word uh, article and to them saying that, of course, laying out all the evidence we have of the coup and of the Nazis, we're still waiting for their response. Then on the, on the heels of that comes the gray zones revelations based on these leaked emails. Yes. We have a, a government official apparently in the foreign office, according to gray zone, communicating with private actors, a journalist called Paul Mason, about a about Grey Zone mostly, about how they could destroy Grey Zone, but also about Consortium News, in which this foreign office official, according to Grey Zone, uh, actually is discussing this with this journalist, Paul Mason, that we are uh, troubling because who's on the board, and he has board in quotations, and he saw your name, John, and Jill Stein, mm -hmm. and Pilger, and people like that, um, and uh, Chris Hedges. As he says, useful, the useful, useful idiots. suspects or usual suspects, he says. Yes, the usual suspects. And <laughs> I laughed when I saw that. He then, he then contacted Nina Yankovitz, who was at that time the head of the Disinformation Governance Board under mm -hmm. the NHS. And Yankovitz wrote back to her and said she thought we were not being funded, but we're only useful idiots. So she got the first part of that right. Yeah. Nobody funding us except our readers. And but but useful idiots, I suggest that these people look in the mirror and see who the real useful idiots are, because they are in fact purveyors of disinformation that help the state's interests, both the US and the UK. And anybody who questions British and American foreign policy is considered spreading disinformation. We don't have our own agency. We don't have our own editorial judgment, just like those Vietnam protests were not on their own protesting against what their government was doing. They had to be directed by a foreign power. It's laughable, but apparently some of these people, I think, really believe it. They don't. They really believe that U.S. UK is spreading democracy, that they're not just uh, right. suing their own geopolitical and economic interests, and therefore... They have to be the state has to be defended from little consortium news. I mean, it's beyond bizarre. I mean, and it's going on today. I just reported a guy on Twitter who's trying to spread a rumor that I'm uh, with FBI counterintelligence. I mean, this what? also got on our chat last night in YouTube and said we're COINTELPRO. And he also attacked our executive producer of our webcast as being MI6. So is that a coincidence? This is all happening in the last few weeks. Wow. He will survive this, your question, your second question, by the readers continuing to fund us. Yes. Can't use PayPal, but there are other ways still to fund us. As long as they can, we're going to survive because PayPal did us a favor, actually, John. We never had a better one-day fundraising uh, amount than the day after we announced PayPal had done this to us. Excellent. We have exceeded our $60,000 goal this month in our spring drive. We're over 80000 already. So Fantastic. PayPal. Fantastic. Joe, um, do you see this as a temporary situation? And I don't mean just, just what's happening to Consortium News. I mean attacks on independent media. Because I don't want to overstate this, but this seems to be M McCarthyism to me. Uh, you know, Joe McCarthy made a lot of uh, a lot of accusations that he couldn't back up. And then after three years or so, three and a half years, he just sort of fell apart. Do you see any parallels with what Consortium News is going through right now compared 
to what happened in the 1950s when these crazy accusations were being made? Uh, my feeling is it's much worse than that. Mm. We, that was the fourth instance where someone in government was going after press or that they didn't like, or people that they thought were communists in MacArthur's case. John Adams, second president, Sedition Act, yes. two people in jail. Next administration, Jefferson let it pass. It only lasted three years. Woodrow Wilson tried to get official censorship in the 1917 Espionage Act. Yes. Failed by one vote in the Senate. Newspaper editors across the country were outraged by this. It was a different time. They were outraged by this. Uh, and it also fell uh, within two years of, of Wilson leaving the White House. That also lapsed. It was no longer that uh, act. Then McCarthy came, and yes, people stood up to him finally, and that and he collapsed like a house of cards. This is different because there's so many more people involved here because of social media, mm -hmm. and they uh, and the political climate is different today. Since RussiaGate, in particular, in 2016, there's been this mantra of Russia being blamed for Hillary losing and for what consortium news rights, with gray zone rights. This is going to go on, I think, a lot longer. I don't see any one force standing up, whether that be a new administration, because the Trump administration continued a lot of this stuff. I see much more of a bipartisan, um, even though the Democrats seem to be more in the ascendance about the censorship, they, they, they're really not getting much pushback, except on the disinformation governance board. Republicans did push back, and that's why it's been more bold for the moment. But I think that this is a winning formula for them to continue, to, especially the Democrats, continue to blame Russia. The Republicans will blame China and to deflect attention away from them. We're in a whole different era now. And I think that uh, dissent is far less tolerated today than it even was at the end of McCarthyism when when a few uh, one one person in the hearing and one journalist at CBS was able to really destroy this guy. I don't see that happening now. Right. This is dug in, and I think social media continues to grow. They're going to have to continue to try to smear dissenters in the way uh, that they're doing now with government working with these private actors in this, this cottage burgeoning industry of anti-disinformation. Joe, you're in London awaiting the decision by Home Secretary Priti Patel over whether to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. What can you tell us about Julian's physical, mental, and emotional condition? And what are you hearing about the the extradition? Well, uh, we just had a letter of 300 doctors for Assange to Priti Patel, who's the Home Secretary, who has on her desk right now the extradition order, which she's probably about to sign, most likely by Friday this week. The doctors are pointing out that he had a stroke. It happened, a mini-stroke, the first day of his a high court hearing in October last year, and that that didn't figure into the high court's decision. So that the the reason the high court overturned the initial court's uh, barring of extradition uh, is because of assurances from the United States. The original judge in the lower court said Assange was too ill mentally to go to horrendous American prison conditions. Therefore, yes. she said he could not be extradited. U.S. appeal then put these assurances saying they would treat him humanely. The high court never challenged the condition of U.S. prisons. They couldn't. They didn't challenge his mental uh, health. They couldn't. But they just took America's word uh, for it with these conditional assurances, conditional because they could change their mind. It's written in the, in the, in the assurances. So now that there's new physical evidence of physical illness of a, of a stroke, 
This should be taken into consideration by Priti Patel. And if she signs that order, the Assange people, uh, lawyers will, in fact, uh, challenge that in the high court. And they have to bring up, I think, amongst the other issues, uh, the state of his health. There is no doctor permanently uh, on the premises at the Alexandria Detention Center where Assange would be sent uh, for the pretrial detention. And that's very dangerous because if he gets a stroke, he needs immediate help or he could be he could be a goner. So he's in very bad shape uh, physically, uh, mentally. It's deteriorating, it seems, all the time. But he's an extraordinarily strong man and he's holding on so far. And hopefully he will and they'll able to beat this case somehow. Well, you know, I, I said in Consortium News and elsewhere that it's up to all of us in the event that he is extradited to the United States. It's up to all of us to be there every single day to show our support. Uh, the media, the international media is going to be outside and, and uh, we've got to make our voices heard. We are out of time. That was the voice of Joe Loria. He's the editor in chief of Consortium News and he's the author of How I Lost. By Hillary Clinton. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have another hour coming up. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The police chief of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, held a press conference yesterday, as we mentioned at the top of the show, to discuss the arrest of 31 members of a white supremacist group who had traveled to the city from all over the country to disrupt a Pride Day parade. All 31 were charged with misdemeanor conspiracy to riot. The chief pointedly said in his press conference that, quote, these were not Antifa in disguise. These were not crisis actors. They were white supremacist members of a hate group who came here to disrupt our town, unquote. Meanwhile, the Proud Boys, another alt-right hate group whose leaders have been implicated in the January 6th riot, disrupted a drag queen storytime event at a public library in San Lorenzo, California yesterday. They broke up the event and got away before police could arrive. A Seattle-area assistant police chief, meanwhile, accepted a $1.52 million settlement to resign his position after he was accused of hanging Nazi symbols on his office door and wearing a Hitler mustache. He had otherwise refused to resign. And in politics, Democrats are buying ads to support some of the most radical pro-Trump Republican candidates, hoping that they'll then be easier to beat in a general election. That could backfire, though, and could stick us with some of the most radical elected officials possible. No, that's never happened before, John. (laughs) Fingers crossed. And finally, a pro-Israel hedge fund billionaire has set up a new political action committee with the sole aim of unseating pro-Palestinian Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. The Urban Empowerment Action Pack has already pledged to spend millions of dollars on behalf of five pro-Israel Democrats. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. He's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com, and he's the co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me again. Always, always happy to have you. I always enjoy these uh, these segments, Kevin. Hey, it seems like alt-right groups and white supremacist groups are feeling emboldened lately. 
And, you know, maybe it's not just lately. Maybe it's since the the riot in, in Charlottesville, let's say, back in 2017. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, they're all household names now. Many of them who have participated in these disruptions have been charged with misdemeanors, and they end up paying a fine, and then they go home. If anything, it seems that this only serves as a recruiting tool for them. Do you see demonstrations and protests getting worse before they get better? What should we expect to see? You do have to walk a pretty fine line, right? Because uh, if you look at what their reporting was on their uh, persons, to use a vague term, uh, I, I, do, I do not see any reporting that says they had weapons. Right. Uh, there's one report that says a person had a smoke grenade. Right. But what we have is uh, a clear uh, example where the authorities believe there was an intent to riot on the part of a group of people who were going to protest a pride event. And uh, what we have on the books throughout many states in the U.S. are hate crimes laws that people believe could be enforced against this group, the Patriot Front, for going to a Pride event uh-huh. um, to antagonize and harass people while they're there, uh, while the LGBTQ plus community is there um, having this celebration that happens annually. And so I think what's difficult is if you are on the left, uh, you believe that everyone should be allowed to be out as a person, you believe that somebody should be able to have their identity respected, etc. cetera. Um, however, you also have to think tactically about counter protests of your own that you're going to want to conduct. Right. And whether authorities are going to preemptively round you up and arrest you before you get to the location. So I think there are there are issues that there are, there are people who um, are on my side who, who agree ideologically with a lot of the things that I think that might uh, uh, d- disagree with where I'm going with this because, you know, what, what, the whole idea of like, what should we have First Amendment right? I think it's actually become a debate lately. Do people who are hate mongers have First Amendment rights? Do you have a First Amendment right to go there and stir up trouble? And I would only say that the cautionary thing that you have to consider is uh, if authorities are preemptively rounding up people before they get to the point where they get to rally or hold a demonstration, that can always be turned against you. That's a good point. You know, there were a couple of things that struck me about this, uh, this Coeur d'Alene thing. Um, these guys were all jam-packed like sardines in a U-Haul, which was weird. It, that told <laughs> me that, you know, they didn't drive up in... in in six cars because they didn't want to be spotted. Number two, they were all wearing masks. Every single one of them was wearing a mask. Well, why would you wear a mask? Cause you don't want to be identified, but you're right. Otherwise, I mean, if they had just driven up in their cars and made a counter protest, well, you know, it's America, they can do whatever they want. And, and the government can't, uh, can't prohibit them from making their, uh, their positions known, but the way they went about it, was all wrong. Uh, it's like they were asking for trouble. And you're right also about the smoke bomb. I was reading a, a piece on the ADL website last night, which I generally try to stay away from because the ADL has its own problems. But uh, they said that this group is well known for the use of smoke bombs. That's how they initiate their disruptions. 
they believe that when they throw smoke bombs, it causes chaos and fear. And they're able to, to sort of destroy the, the, the unity of the groups that they're targeting when they throw these smoke bombs. I thought that was very interesting. And so I'll just quickly say that I do believe that they were probably out to incite a riot. Yeah. I just, I just, as somebody who supports the right of everyone to protest, get a little uneasy when people are being rounded up preemptively before anything has happened. Yeah, that's, that's a good thought. That's something that, that we really do need to pay close attention to. Yesterday in San Lorenzo, California, which is not far from uh, from San Francisco, it's just across the bay, a drag queen story time event at a little local library was disrupted by Proud Boys, and they were they were screaming that the drag queen was a groomer and a pedophile, and shouting at at parents uh, who had brought their children. They wrecked the event, and then they just walked out scot free. And I've been I've been wondering if we're entering a period like we did in the '60s where Americans are really polarized, both sides take to the streets, and then things get ugly. Do you see that happening? Well, so uh, let, me, let, me, let me address the specifics of the uh, drag queen event first very quickly, and then I'll get to your broader question. Because you know, to, to me, this is, this is a rather stunning development. Uh, and it seems to stem from... The fact that there were these videos, or at least one video that went viral from Dallas uh, a little bit more than a week ago, that showed that there were children at, um, at at a gay bar in Dallas where there was a drag queen event taking place, and so you have people who are on the right who have objected, and they say it's not family friendly to have children at what was called a drag queen brunch event. So I think actually that's what the Proud Boys were responding to or why they showed up to this story time and, and why it's developing into a flashpoint in these culture war, uh, the, the culture war that we seem to perpetually have in this country around certain particular issues. And you, for me, um, it's a bit of a tangent, but I just have to say that one of my all-time favorite films is *The Birdcage* with Robin oh, Williams yeah. and and Nathan Lane. And to Brilliant me, movie. I, I I wouldn't actually think that uh, that movie would be edgy or relevant today. In fact, I watched it a few years ago, and I was like, "Yeah, this is pretty tame. This is something they did in the '90s." And now you're seeing this counter uh, revolution, counter subversive spirit take over this country. And that brings me to your larger question, which is to say that. To me, Donald Trump was always a counter-subversive president. The reason why he was there was kind of a response to people feeling we had gone too far, I think. Uh, the Too far, and, and, and I'm not endorsing this, by the way, I'm just making a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Too far in electing a black president, too far maybe with some of the Occupy Wall Street protesting, uh, maybe too far with some of the demonstrating for black lives that had taken place in response to police killing and, and, and murdering people with the, the authority that they are given. And uh, and so Donald Trump was um, made was made president, um, and he benefited from all of this backlash that was happening to uh, people. And you know he was riding the wave of we got to keep immigrants out, we need to build a border wall, all of that. And because Joe Biden is not a meaningful alternative to Trumpism, and because he doesn't really fill any of this void that's been left by Trump being out of office. 
it means that all these groups get to come in and fill it. It means that we get to see the Proud Boys disrupt drag queen events. We get to see the Patriot Front go and challenge LGBTQ plus uh, pride events. We get to see all of these groups take action and, and, and seize the moment in which there is no direction being given from people in the White House. And in fact, they're afraid to state their values and principles because they believe it could be a liability for them right. in the midterms. And so they don't say anything. They don't state where they stand like they did in 2020 when they ran uh, for the for the White House against Donald Trump. Um, and, and instead, what they do is they uh, revel in something that we'll get to uh, in, in a few minutes. But I, I think to your question, I, I, it's, it's been happening for some time, and I think it probably will just get worse in the sense that we don't have someone in the White House who is providing an alternative to what I think is really reactionary, hate-filled kind of agenda that's being proposed by these groups. Let's talk for a minute about uh, this assistant police chief outside Seattle. This guy put a Nazi SS symbol on his office door. He refused to take the symbol down. And then he grew a Hitler mustache. He was suspended for two weeks without pay after several of the, of the police officers who work with him or work for him uh, complained. And then the rank and file said, no, two weeks without pay is not good enough. They demanded that he be fired. He refused to resign, and apparently there was nothing in the contract negotiated by the police union that could be used as grounds to fire him. It's not inappropriate to grow a Hitler mustache and put SS lightning bolts on your desk, on your, uh, your door. So they had to offer him $1.52 million to resign, and uh, he just signed the, the deal yesterday. What does that say about the strength of the police union? Or am I getting this whole thing wrong? Is this a freedom of speech issue? Well, I think it's really entirely about the power that police unions have over dictating uh, policy, over protecting uh, cops who are involved in being, you know, open Nazi supporters in this instance. Yeah. Uh, but obviously we've talked about a range of examples in the past uh, when uh, you used to do your criminal injustice show right. for loud and clear. We'd go over the cops that were being protected who were, uh, I don't know, participating in the drug trade as they've done here in Chicago where I'm based. Okay. Um, they've uh, decided they'd skim a little off the top leave some of the drug dealers on the streets and be on the take while they are patrolling the streets. Uh, they, they're finding ways to make money. They're shaking people down through civil asset forfeiture mm -hmm. or whatever they've decided. They come up with their own grifts or they get away with sexual assault. There have been horrendous stories of cops um, taking um, younger girls and uh, raping them in their cars, uh, threatening them. Yeah. And we could just do, you know, hours and hours of shows on the way cops take advantage of the union contracts they have that provide them protection. So, you know, on one hand, you could get pulled in the direction of talking about freedom of speech. But on the other hand, I would, I would say that uh, as far as I consider this a freedom of speech issue. Okay. 
you can put the Nazi symbol on your door. You can put the SS symbol there. You can joke about the Holocaust, but you cannot expect somebody not to act upon that speech when you engage in it. Yes. Because it does have meaning. Putting a Nazi rank insignia on your office door and joking about an event in which, you know, millions of Jewish people were exterminated a long time ago. Um, it, but, but not that long ago, there were, there's only recently, you know, it, we still have people dying who survived the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's going to be a reaction to that. And I, I think sometimes in our culture war, which we have, um, around whether people are being canceled for something they said or whether they're being silenced or whatever. People often mistake the fact that if you speak out, you do get to speak, but I get to respond to you and tell you that I think that what you said is garbage. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk a little bit about politics. Democrats have been buying ads in support of some of the most strident pro-Trump candidates running in Republican primaries. I had to read the headline twice before I actually read the article because it sounded so nuts to me. The idea is that the Democrats want to get these Trump loyalists um, uh, to win their primaries because they would be easier to defeat in a general election in November. But this is a real risk, isn't it? Isn't it possible to end up with a whole bunch of Marjorie Taylor Greens? I mean, why take the chance? And and let me add something to that, too. If you were really concerned about what's best for the country, you would want to defeat these radicals because it shouldn't then matter uh, who wins in in November so long as the dangerous person lost in the spring. I mean, I will say, just to jump in, they are at least consistent. You know what I mean? They try to kneecap yeah. everyone on the left. On the and left. They think that That's they can, right. you know what I mean? It's like they they continue, despite some evidence, to think that these are the people who are most likely to lose. And uh, they're not necessarily correct. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, Kev. But this is about who threatens their interests. And, exactly. And, and a Marjorie Taylor Greene, as much as they go on about how they think she's a kook, they do not, they do not threaten anything that the Democrats want to do. She's not going to, if she's elected, reelected, everything's going to go on like normal for all of these people sure. in Washington, D.C. They're going to be able to go, you know, speak at the Brookings Institution while the director's shilling for Qatar. Yeah, and that's right. Be able to, and, and, and be able to speak their uh, establishment views about what the U.S. should do to counter Russia and China. That's entirely reckless and going to run more and more families into the ground and make it harder for them to pay their bills because inflation is going to spiral out of control. And we just don't have the ability to counter these countries with those kinds of, of policies without doing great damage to our own country itself. And and so they are threatened by people who run on the left of them. That's why they are out to destroy them. That's why later we're going to get to a story that fits within this possibly. But, you know, this isn't really um, something in which uh, they're afraid of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they elevate what they call Pied Piper candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene all the time. This is what the memo read, uh, it was published as part of the Podesta emails by WikiLeaks. It said, 
um, very clearly that they are going to elevate these candidates that were the most extreme and that they wanted to run against them. And so, you know, they, they, they say we want to force all Republican candidates to lock themselves into extreme conservative positions that will hurt them in a general election. But that never works, does it? No. And it doesn't work because it's actually energizing the base. Exactly. Those people who support those extreme Republicans really believe in those extreme views. And so then when their Republican candidate is under attack by Democrats, it just makes them feel even more strongly about going out there and knocking on doors and mobilizing people to support that Republican candidate. Um, and then they say, we're going to undermine any credibility, trust Republican, that a Republican presidential candidate or any sort of Republican politician might have to make inroads to our coalition or independence. But all you're doing is giving more airtime and attention to this Republican candidate who could be fringe, who could be marginalized if you ignored them. So uh, they, they 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 really and truly are engaged in something self-defeating. But doesn't that tell you so much about our two-party system and the way that it works? Is that the they they need those people? You know, without the without these extreme right-wing politicians to run against, then the Democrats are uh, definitely without any relevancy whatsoever because they have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer voters. There isn't anything that they put forward. I'm not saying that they do nothing when they're in office. They definitely do something. Um, and, and, it, and it can be quite traumatic and awful for people who are demanding action. Mm -hmm. But uh, th they are only concerned about stopping people on the left and the people who are on the right. They coexist with them insofar as it can get them reelected. I like Rashida Tlaib a lot. I really do. And I sent a very modest donation to her reelection campaign. I think we need more voices in Congress that don't tow the Israeli foreign policy line. I, 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 my view is a minority view. I acknowledge that. But now we have this hedge fund billionaire who's going to try to unseat Tlaib in the Democratic primary and others like her. Do you think, Kevin, this is essentially a one-off? Or should those elected officials who are more pro-Palestinian than others uh, worry about losing their seats within the Democratic primaries? So I think that this fits into what I was hinting at earlier, which is uh, you've got these Democrats who are invested in fighting anybody on the left who presents a challenge to incumbent Democrats yeah. who are going to force them to leave their comfortable zones that they have for what they're willing to support as far as policy. Uh, you know, the things like uh, we're going to have more support for workers' rights. We're going to challenge the power of police in our communities. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, tax the rich. We're going to – and you, you go down the list. And to just be very quick and simplistic about it, anything Bernie Sanders supported, that's what – the Democratic Party leadership is basically against, and these these candidates that come forward then are getting attacked by these groups that are essentially um, trying to bait them, going after them, trying to paint them as anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and also using tactics that have nothing to do with uh, Israel and 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 Palestine in order to try and tear them down. And actually, this this fund that you're speaking about. I cannot help myself. I have to mention before we wrap up uh, your, your, 
your interview, uh, the the segment here with me, uh, that Bakari Sellers at CNN is actually connected to this hedge, uh, uh, connected to this pack, this urban empowerment action pack. Um, and you know, they're, they're masking this, like this is supposed to be a coalition of black business and civic leaders. And that's all just, uh, kind of like a mask for, for what it's really about, Mm -hmm. because what they're doing is they're weaponizing opposition to Israel in order to divide and, and attack people who are progressive. And, and Bakari is somebody who's been doing that for the last seven to eight years using his position. And, you know, he lies. He just spreads lies about Bernie Sanders. He says things like Bernie doesn't support civil rights. Um, he attacks people. Um, he says that it would have been better if Bernie Sanders never ran for office, never ran for president. And uh, and so to see him attach himself to this, it's not possible to take this kind of a pack seriously and believe that they're genuinely concerned about any of these issues. It's just a partisan pack that's weaponizing us. Uh, and in this case, they're actually going after Rashida Tlaib's identity. I mean, she's being targeted because she's a Palestinian American mm-hmm. and she can't change that, but they hate her for it. They hate her because she exists. Yes. And so they're going to try to run her out of Congress. I think you're exactly right. White House spokesperson Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre yesterday dismissed a question from CNN about Joe Biden's mental and physical health. She said it was, quote, something that shouldn't even be asked, unquote. But people are asking about it because he would be 82 years old by the end of his term. We had a guest on yesterday to whom I asked this question, and I I want to ask you the same question. There are rumblings inside the Democratic Party reported over the weekend in Politico that Joe Biden shouldn't run again, that he can't win, and that Kamala Harris couldn't do any better than Joe Biden. Names are already being bandied about. They were talking about Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, for example. Do you think there's any real possibility that Joe Biden won't seek reelection? And just as an aside, I, I just wanted to throw this out there because I thought it was hilarious. Um, Donald Trump apparently told a confidant yesterday that he's going to announce his candidacy for president from in front of Ron DeSantis's house. I thought that was just fantastic. Go ahead. What do you think about Joe Biden? I do think that, well, first, my own personal preference is that we're, we're having this conversation uh, way before we should even be having this discussion. But I understand yeah. that the, 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 the decrepit, disreputable, um, morally bankrupt and just craven press have driven us to this conversation about whether Joe Biden is going to run for re-election in 2024 when we haven't even had the midterm elections and it's more than two years before um, you know, we really should even be talking about who's going to do what. But I guess in 2023, he would have to declare his candidacy. Right. And so I think it's – It's really hard for me to say, but I I do think that he has a motivation to run for re-election as long as no doctors are telling him privately that he's not capable of doing it, like you're going to have a heart attack or whatever. You have this condition and you really should take care of your health and retire. I believe that he probably will run. And the way they've been able to stage manage him, I don't see why they couldn't continue to do it for another three or four years. I mean – Oh, even when Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's, they were able to make yeah. him seem like he was a presentable 
president. You know, I'll, I'll just end with this point that I think the thing that most upsets me about where we find ourselves politically is I'm seeing people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders be dragged into uh, endorsing Joe Biden more than two years before that's even something they should be considering. And I'm really hugely disappointed that they're not telling reporters to go away and that they have more pressing matters to deal with. And in fact, they're actually seriously engaging with the question and saying that they support Biden for reelection and, and seeing all the things that Biden has failed at doing in his first year, year and a half as president. It just they're giving away any power they have or leverage to steer the conversation or steer the agenda. And it's just very disappointing. And I think that's why, you know, we have what we started with as our topic at the top of this segment. That's why you see these these neo-fascists, these right-wing groups, these conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene that are able to thrive. Um, and it's because the people who know better the most are not actually giving us the opposition or not putting our foot their foot down and demanding that Biden do more and that's just been the thing that's been the way it is for yeah. uh, since he stepped into the white house yeah i agree with that kevin finally i want to ask you uh, real quickly about the crypto meltdown uh bitcoin closed yesterday at around $22,500 it was like 22466 i think is what it was that's off of its high of $68,000. Is it a coincidence that Bitcoin crashed just as it was becoming mainstream, just as it was being accepted into IRAs, for example, or being offered as part of mutual funds? It seemed like this crash actually saved a lot of people a lot of money by discouraging them from investing in tulips, so to speak. What do you think? Well, that's possible, but in the in the limited knowledge I have of cryptocurrency, uh, I, I've seen that these exchanges have been locking people out of their accounts and making it impossible for them to sell yeah. some of their that's coins true. that they've bought. That yeah, I'm not really sure why they put so much into them at the first place, but they did. And uh, well, they're, sorry, they're, I just want to. These... I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt. I mean. We had Super Bowl ads encouraging people to put money in cryptocurrencies, yes. right? And celebrities coming out and talking about how cryptocurrencies and NFTs were like the next new thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's always bad to gamble with more than you can lose. But it's not as though these ideas just sort of like nobody, t everyone said, no, no, they're dangerous. Don't do it. Right. That That is a good point. Uh, yeah. So, but, but this issue of, uh, there, there's been something called, uh, Terra and there's also Celsius, these platforms that are for like lending crypto lending and, and uh, they'll, they'll stake you. I think if I understand that oh correctly and, and now people can't get in there and they're locked out and then everything that they own is being devalued while we're in the middle of, uh, this market collapse, um, and, uh, all sorts of economic uncertainty, and it's just terrible. It's it's really terrible that people were sucked into this, and that there's been. I mean, I think. Look, at the in the end, where you have to point the finger is always at the top. You always have to find the place oh, yes. in power that is responsible for leading people in this direction where they are going to be poor. So you have the get rich quick scheme that got to come out there and be deployed unregulated. Who is it that should have been doing something? 
someone at the SEC, perhaps, perhaps like the Securities and Exchange Commission, or anybody who works at the Treasury Department could have been doing something more to regulate all of this. But all they did is poo-poo it and make it seem like it wasn't legitimate. And I think one of the biggest fantasies people had was that cryptocurrency was divorced and wasn't a part of the global economy and that it could be a safe haven in the event of a market collapse, which we're seeing is entirely false right now. It is not a place for you to park your money yeah. if you are afraid of losing your money in the bear market that currently exists. Well, thank you for joining us, Kevin Gastala. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have more coming up. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The AFL-CIO is holding its national convention this week in Philadelphia. It began over the weekend. And its guiding theme is building an international solidarity movement with emerging independent unions in the global south, and especially in Mexico. President Biden spoke at the convention this morning. And they're set to bestow the Meany Kirkland Human Rights Award to a fledgling new union representing General Motors workers in Silao, Mexico. That sounds great, right? Well, it does on the surface of things. But the AFL-CIO is not transparent about exactly what it does with foreign unions. Why does the AFL-CIO, for example, accept $75 million a year from the U.S. government for its international operations? How has the AFL-CIO supported U.S.-backed coups in countries where it's supposed to be helping workers? And how does the AFL-CIO backing U.S. foreign policy actually hurt the workers they're trying to help? We're joined by Thomas O'Rourke, Carol Lang, and Steve Zeltzer. Thomas is a retired high school social studies teacher now working as a reporter, a unionist in the hotel Restaurant Union, and the American Federation of Teachers. He served numerous terms in elected union positions, including building rep and national convention delegate. Carol is a professor of history at Bronx Community College City University of New York, and she's a member of the United Front Committee for a Labor Party. And Steve is a labor journalist and producer of labor film and media. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Steve, let's begin with you. The AFL-CIO has long been known semi-jokingly as the AFL-CIA because of its history of anti-communism and its support for U.S. foreign policy. The AFL-CIO accepts $75 million a year from the government for international operations through something called its Solidarity Center. Why? What do they use $75 million for? Well, that's a good question because... uh $75 million is a large part of the budget of the AFL-CIO, and, it's, and it, they get it from the National Endowment for Democracy for their Solidarity Center. But what it really is used for is supporting corporate unionism around the world and supporting the policies of the multinationals of privatization, deregulation around the world, including in Ukraine, uh, where the AFL-CIO supported right-wing union leaders and supported the privatization of Ukraine for the oligarchs. 
They were also involved in the attempted coup or the successful coup in 2014. So we, uh, Labor Education Project on the AFL-CIO International Operations, feel that, uh, that they should not be taking the $75 million from the government. Um, they call themselves an independent union federation. And from our point of view, that means you don't take money from the U.S. government for your international operations. Right. I have to agree with that. Carol, you've worked closely at the uh, or you've looked closely at the history of the labor movement in the U.S. and abroad. Why has much of what the AFL-CIO done over the years remained secret? Why is there so little transparency? It seems to me that they would want to publicize and celebrate their successes abroad, but we don't hear anything of the sort. Why is that? Uh, their successes abroad is different than what I would consider success. Mm-hmm. Their successes abroad are helping to overthrow governments and organize coups like in Chile and and Colombia and all over the world. And so that's not something that they want people to know. Um, as a matter of fact, at my job I, where I work at Bronx Community and, and the Professional Staff Congress, um, passed a resolution uh, in the delegate assembly saying that we support the Palestinians because they're being repressed by the Israelis. And immediately, immediately, within seconds, as soon as we raised the resolution, the Zionists in the union went, you know, ballistic about Mm -hmm. it. And essentially that resolution went nowhere. And, you know, they, they, um, the ASL supports the foreign policy of, of both the United States and the Israeli government. And so rather than getting into a discussion and a dialogue and allowing workers to, to understand what they're doing and deciding whether they think that's right or wrong, essentially they don't tell anybody anything. And so it's in their interest, essentially, to keep workers ignorant and, you know, through their lack of transparency. So this way, nobody questions anything that they do. And then they can applaud themselves for supporting Cynthia, you know, in Mexico after they supported the previous union, which ended up in a situation where workers were murdered because they were trying to organize a different union and fighting against, um, you know, Ford. My goodness. Thomas, help us understand the modalities of the role that the AFL-CIO plays in U.S. foreign policy. Is it ad hoc or is it more formal? I remember over the years seeing glowing reports in, in my own union newsletter about international labor conferences in Africa and South America and how wildly successful they were, not realizing that there were other goals besides solidarity. What can you tell us? Oh, thanks for the question, John. Uh, I'd start by suggesting listeners find a book by one of our LaPau comrades, Kim Sipes, uh, S-C-I-P-E-S is his last name. He's a labor sociologist at Purdue whose book, AFL-CIO's Secret War Against Developing Country Workers, Solidarity or Sabotage, I've been reading for the past few days. Um, And he absolutely uh, asserts, and I agree with him, that uh, it is not ad hoc whatsoever. It is a a formal... um, um, it's a formal, hard ideological strain uh, held by many union leaders. Uh, he traces the pro-imperial labor leadership uh, of the AFL-CIO uh, of the AFL directly to the founding president, Kraft unionist 
and verified racist Samuel Gompers mm-hmm. in the 1890s. Mm-hmm makes an excellent case that that is the case, that it, that, that thesis, is, you know, labor, labor imperialism beginning that early is, uh, um, uh, has set the, uh, sort of set the stage. He then uh, analyzes and I, um, how the AFL and then the AFL-CIO's history up to the turn of the century uh, and well after the official end of the Cold War with the demolition of the Soviet Union. But I would say, you know, certainly we could see World War One as a major watershed, political watershed. Sure. Uh, European powers uh, and later America fought the bloodiest war up in history up to then. And at the outbreak of the war, none of the leftist political parties, including the German Social Democratic Party, the British Labor Party, the French Socialists, none of them... Um, Uh, or I should say all of them showed loyalty and following uh, of their um, to their ruling classes and thus betrayed the interests of their class and union members. Uh, this, of course, led – it would be they, the union members, who were constricted into armies who would pay the price in blood for imperialist hubris and greed. And, of course, that was um, – truncated in the middle of World War I by the Russian Revolution and the ensuing victory of the Bolsheviks and workers in the Russian Civil War, which, of course, inspired struggle across the planet, from China to Italy to Germany to Britain and its colonies, even in the United States. Uh, the 1919 strike wave in Seattle, the Cold Wars of the 1920s demonstrated that American workers were absolutely capable of militant class struggle. For our purposes, World War II, though, is the most relevant. Beginning from 1939 throughout the war years and its aftermath, the AFL, the AFL it was still the AFL then, mm-hmm. under the secretary-treasurer leadership of the renowned and vicious anti-communist George Meany, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd stay a leader until his death in 1979, became heavily involved in Europe and promoted the, uh, a, the AFL's Free Trade Union Committee. Now, this is important. This ideological slogan, Free Trade Union, came to mean consciously anti-communist and was used to drive wedges into post-European politics by differentiating communist-led unions from non-communist ones, including Christian trade unions. Remember that Christian democratic parties across the globe from El Salvador and Chile to Italy – and um, and Germany are invariably uh, anti-communist and conservative, uh, and of course we assert that this this model um, and and Sipes depicts it, but uh, we've known about you know from Guatemala to Chile to Brazil, uh, various uh, various countries in which militant, not necessarily communist, but even so, uh, if they were. The notion that communists, if you're a communist, you're automatically brainwashed or taking orders right. from you know, a foreign, um, uh, a foreign uh, uh, country was just absolutely a, a, a myth that served to secure the privileges and, and perks of the labor bureaucracy in this country. Right. Am I clear about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's an important point. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's it's it was a model developed early mm-hmm. here in this country mm-hmm. as it's been applied and obviously at the end of World War II with America being the dominant 
world power. The Soviets had, of course, uh, improved their position vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, um, you know, in, in world uh, in world politics and geo geopolitics. But uh, the United States remained the dominant one. So their uh, their uh, policies, both uh, governmental and uh, um, and uh, social, through this trade union, were uh, were uh, had had quite a bit of influence. Carol, coming back to you, uh, tell us a little bit more about this convention uh, that the AFL-CIO is hosting in Philadelphia. You were all there, or most of you were there, to engage with delegates about the union's cooperation with the government. And what was your reception like? Well, we um, we were handing out flyers, mm -hmm. and um, I, I surprisingly, I mean, mostly nobody knew that the United States government was giving out its largesse to the AFL-CIO, um, and they were quite surprised by it. There were some people who really didn't care, and their attitude was, well, it's our money, so we might as well get it. Um, there were people who were hostile, some. Um, there, I mean, it, it really didn't appear to be worker-run. Mm. I mean, a lot of the people were dressed to the nine, and they looked like ex they could have been executives in some corporation. Um, but, you know, we did engage with some people, and one person in particular who worked for the Solidarity Center said, well, you know, it's a mixed bag. Maybe the AFL leadership does some bad things, but I do some good things. Right. And so, you know, it was unwilling to, to understand that the bad things really sort of outweighed the good things. Um, and, you know, they, they were sort of rushing in and didn't stand outside that long. And we tried to get them. Our intention was sort of to get them to hopefully come to the conference that we were having yeah. and discuss the positions of the AFL. But, but for the most part, either people were, you know, pretty ignorant of what was going on or unwilling to engage or be upset about the fact that, you know, this is not something that a trade union should be doing, should be taking money from from the boss, essentially. Right. And ultimately that they are going to do the boss's bidding around the world. And so our intention was to totally enlighten, educate people. Steve, uh, what kind of response have you received from the AFL-CIO to your calls to open the books? My guess is that that very few union members even know that the, that the AFL-CIO accepts government funding and even fewer likely know what they do with the money. Well, the AFL-CIO is very secretive. Yes. Dairy Center. In fact, if you go to the 990 uh, form for the Solidarity Center, uh, they don't list the uh, staff of the Solidarity Center. Oh, boy. So, I mean, and the reason is, is that these staff uh, are, some of them are government agents actually working with the CIA and AID, and they don't want people to know who they are. So the problem is, is it has become an appendage of the U.S. government, the international operations of the AFL-CIO, and they don't want to debate on it 13 years ago or... There was an effort as well to have a discussion, and they crushed that. Uh, today, I learned, uh, this is the middle of the convention, that there was a resolution for democracy in the AFL-CIO from the Vermont AFL-CIO and for a general strike against any possible coup and insurrection, and it was tabled by the executive committee. Wow. 
but even got to the convention floor. So here we're having hearings in Congress about the threat of an insurrection and coup, uh, an attack on democracy, and the AFL-CIO leadership are refusing to have a discussion at their convention about the dangers uh, of the rise of fascism in the United States. I consider that an attack on democracy. Uh, I don't believe that the Democratic Party are going to save America. Uh, far from it. And I think that workers have to discuss their self-organization to prepare for the coming a confrontation that's going to happen. It's likely the Republicans are going to take over Congress and the executive, and they're going to implement major attacks on the working class and dictatorial attacks. These massacres that we're having in the United States could be taking place every day. We could have five or six massacres a day uh, under Republicans. Not that I support the Republicans, but that's the atmosphere we're in. And working people in this country, uh, trade unions, have to discuss this crisis, the need for democracy in our unions or for the formation of new unions, and also preparing for this uh, uh, possible coup and insurrection. And they don't want to have a debate on that. They don't want to have a debate on opening their books of their international operations. I mean, they have been involved. They have blood on their hands. They were involved in South Africa in supporting Butha Lacey, who was murdering trade unions. Yeah. Uh, they've been involved in Guatemala. They were involved in trying to overturn the government in Venezuela. What does that have to do with workers in this country? Uh, do workers in this country want uh, coups and uh, revolutions? I mean, they're talking about coups in this country. They, uh, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, and the AFL-CIO, but they've been involved in organizing coups around the world, and they support organizing coups openly. They're bringing democracy, yeah. as they say. And, and so few union members realize that this is happening. Uh, and and frankly, it's happening with the use of their their union dues. Another thing that they don't uh, that they don't understand, Thomas. Where can our listeners go to learn more about the work that you do, or to get more information, or or maybe even uh, figure out how they can help? Okay, I want to answer that, but I want to say this, John. Please do. Uh, my tax dollars. Uh, they never asked me if I wanted to yeah. uh, buy a B one bond. Yeah, that's right. They they never do so you know uh, that's uh, that's an argument that's uh, been used by many people and it uh, you invariably falls on deaf ears. Yes, indeed. Labor education project on AFL CIO international operations. I know it's a mouthful. La Pau. It sounds like a caption from a Cape Crusader comic book. A <laughs> website is AFL CIO. What's a hyphen after O I N T dot education? AFL CIO hyphen INT dot education. Our email is info at AFL CIO hyphen INT dot education. In other words, just add the uh, info in front of that uh, that main uh, URL. Um, you can sign up. Uh, for um, for uh, for emails, you can sign up for uh, um, invitations to to join us at uh, at regular meetings that we're having. Uh, you know, Zoom meetings across, uh, linking people from across the country and hopefully uh, uh, the continent soon enough. And um, um, and there is uh, you know plenty of plenty of information uh, and uh, about our past activities on the website. So I encourage uh, listeners to to please uh, please check. Out. You know, it's, only, it's a portal where you can get all the information of the AFL-CIO around the world. So this is yes. very hidden from the American working class. And what we're doing is we're providing a portal on the Internet where they can find out what the AFL-CIO is doing around the world. Oh, that's great. You know, both my grandfathers and one of my grandmothers were members of the United Steelworkers Union. 
Um, my dad was a member of the American Brotherhood of Musicians. My mom was a member of the American Federation of Teachers. I was a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. This is all very important stuff to me. So thank you for, for taking the time. I appreciate this, this great uh, conversation. We were happy to be joined by Thomas O'Rourke, Carol Lang, and Steve Zeltzer. Thomas is a retired high school social studies teacher, now working as a reporter, a unionist in the hotel restaurant union and the American Federation of Teachers. He served numerous terms in elected union positions including building rep and national convention delegate. Carol is a professor of history at Bronx Community College, City University of New York, and a member of the United Front Committee for a Labor Party. And Steve is a labor journalist and producer of labor film and media. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take one more short break and come back with some final thoughts. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a few last headlines to bring you before we get out of here. And one is that uh, the pretrial detention of WNBI star Brittany Griner, started tripping over my tongue oh. there for a minute, has been extended. Oh. Yeah. Uh, she is going to remain in custody through at least July 2nd. This is according to Russian Poor media. Woman. So she's now been detained since February 17th for having vape cartridges with hash oil in her bag as she tried to leave uh, Moscow International Airport. And her detention was extended for another 18 days at the request of the investigation, uh, according to a representative from the court. Again, per Russian media. Poor thing. I mean, what what do you got to? You need another 18 days to decide if she was going to try and if she was smuggling tiny amounts of drugs. Yeah, it, it is really, it is really yeah, a shame. This is really unfortunate. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I think we, the last time we talked about Brittany Griner, we said that it seemed as though, and we um, talked about some other reporting on the case, but that it seemed as though her family and her supporters had decided that uh, keeping the spotlight away from the case was not necessarily in her interest, which is what it had seemed like at first. Right. Um, and the State Department always asks people not to talk to the media. Mm-hmm. It's like their their go to position. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem like that has made a very much difference. You That's know, right. it's not like day in and day out. You're seeing Brittany Griner's name in, you know, in the media. She hasn't been at all since the last time her pretrial detention was extended. And so, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Hard to, you know, surely this is an offense. Well, actually, I don't know. In my opinion, surely an offense, this is an offense that uh, warrants a, a fee and little else. Yeah, but I don't just make, pay the fine and let her go. I don't make the laws in Russia. Uh, yeah, so that's a, kind of a, that's sad for Griner and her family, I believe. Also, we haven't been um, talking about this, but have you seen any footage of the flooding in Yellowstone? Oh my gosh, today I saw it for the first time. Yeah, southern Montana really flooded. Lots of people in in Yellowstone, uh, no reports of deaths or injuries. No. Um, But there are still a lot of people cut off from evacuation routes, as as can happen when you live in an area that's relatively remote and has, you know, 
only a couple of ways in and out. But yeah, really dramatic footage of like houses, a house falling into a river, roads washed out through the park. Yellowstone Park is closed until at least Wednesday um, because they just they don't know what has happened inside. I just read a, a travel review from Yellowstone yesterday. I'm totally serious about this. And this this woman was complaining that they don't cage the animals at night. Oh, and my it can God. be very dangerous, especially if you have children. Yeah. Yeah. The world <laughs> is dangerous. Goodness. I couldn't believe my eyes. Speaking of caged animals, do you follow any of the efforts to get um, Happy the Elephant freed from the Bronx Zoo? Yeah. So this organization yes. called the, the Non-Human Rights Project uh, brought a suit um, to say that Happy the Elephant was being illegally detained by the Bronx Zoo and should be transferred to an animal sanctuary uh, because she, she should be recognized as a person with the right of habeas corpus. And uh, they, they took it to New York State's highest court, and the court ruled yesterday, oh, today, that she is not a person in the legal sense and she wasn't illegally detained, although it was a 5-2 decision. Wow. Yes, which the organization is taking as something as a victory that they convinced two wow. of these five or two of these seven judges yeah. um, that she should have a person. And basically the, person. The, the reason the court gave for its decision or part of it is that, you know, if we decide that animals have personhood and have a you know have rights to bodily autonomy and freedom and the right this really would upend modern society wow would it uh, which it absolutely would right and so you know i i don't know what you do to change that overnight but i also think it is incredibly sad to have this elephant has been in the zoo for 40 years you know she arrived with three other elephants she's now kept alone alone in her space uh, next to another elephant who she can sort of touch with her trunk through the bars of their enclosures and see. But like, you've taken a, a social animal that in the wild has, has you know, close friends and an extended network of uh, friendly acquaintances and family members and kept them in isolation for 40 years just for fun. Like, it breaks your heart. It is really sad. This decision, I mean... I can understand, I guess, the legal basis of this decision and this desire for this court not to be the one that suddenly decides right. uh, you, you shouldn't, you're not allowed to detain any animals. I mean, you know, it would upend our, our entire farming industry, to say the least. But yeah. I saw a t-shirt the other day. There should be a mechanism to force the release of this elephant into a sanctuary yeah. where she it's, can have the sort of social contact that she should. It is very cruel. It's yes. the cruel and they do it to dolphins it's sure. cruel and they do it to orcas it's very it's just uh, yeah it's in fact shameful. orcas their their uh dorsal fin uh flops over when they're held in captivity scientists don't know why but it, it as crazy as it sounds it could have something to do with depression no yeah it's disgusting mm -hmm. it's it's a really terrible shame so i sort of understand this decision and it is interesting that you got two of these seven judges to say actually you you made a case and we believe you so We'll see where it goes from here. And this is where we're going to leave it today on Political Misfits. I want to say, of course, thank you to the guests that joined us and to the producers and engineers that make the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>